Let's go. Let's go. To the library. To the library. Vamos a la biblioteca. Let's go to the library. 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 A Niagara Falls Public Library podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is your host, Greg Jansen. I am a community development and programming librarian with the Niagara Falls Public Library in beautiful Niagara Falls, Ontario, Canada. Back in March, I had the opportunity to speak with Jennifer Maruno, the author of many books for children and young adults, including her latest, Until Niagara Falls, which follows a young girl as she grows up in Niagara Falls in the 1960s. Without further ado, here is that conversation. And I'm here with author Jennifer Maruno. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. This is very exciting. I am really, really happy to be invited to Niagara Falls. I was going to say, it's kind of close to home for you. I mean, you're in Hamilton now, is that correct? Burlington. Burlington, Burlington okay. Yeah. But you are you grew yeah. up in Niagara Falls. Um, and, right, uh, went hence... to high school in Niagara Falls and spent a lot of time visiting Niagara Falls while my parents were still alive. Right. And still have family in Niagara Falls. Right, and then hence the subject of your book, Until Niagara Falls, which is what we're talking about today. That's right. So, That's right. you know, the first thing that struck me about the book is the title. And I know it's kind of, you know, it's a small detail, but I want to talk about the title if we, if we can just to start off. I know the phrase until Niagara Falls is said at one point by Maureen. Um, but I was speaking with my mother-in-law and I was telling her what I was reading. I was saying, yeah, I'm reading this book until Niagara Falls. And she said, oh, I haven't heard that in years. People used to say it all the time as a way to sign off on letters and postcards. I had no idea this was a, you know, a phrase that, you know, a figure of speech kind of. Um, so... You know, what, what made you want to revive this, um, inspired you well, to revive this old saying as the title of your book? Yeah, the original title of the book, actually, my working title was called Brave is Blondin. Right. And I was amazed at the number of people who had absolutely no idea who Blondin was. Right. Now, growing up in Niagara Falls, he was, you know, he hung over Clifton Hill, yeah. right? You yeah. know, everybody knew who yeah. Blondin was. I remember was. that. That's up until a few years ago, I believe. That's right. That's yeah. right. And it was quite funny because uh, when I sent it out to the publisher, they said, who is Blondin? And I was so <laughs> struck by the fact that nobody knew who Blondin yeah. was, right? So uh, we worked on it and worked on it and they loved it and it was, just wasn't the title. And it just hit me that, you know, that's not the title. Okay. And it just came to be Until Niagara Falls. And they said, oh, that's a good one. Mm -hmm. So I said, all right, let's use that then because it has Niagara Falls in the title and sure. that's the important thing. Sure. But what it did strike me as being odd that absolutely nobody knew who Blondin was. Right. It's too local a detail for, I guess, anyone outside of Niagara Falls to... That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, I mean, he, he plays an important feature in the book sure. because, you know, she's always studying about him and figuring out about him. But um, until Niagara Falls became the catchphrase, and I didn't, I didn't know if anybody knew that it was a kind of common catchphrase, but it was a good title. Yeah. And would that have been a common catchphrase, kind of particular to Niagara Falls, or did people use that in general? You know, I don't know because when we used it, my whole scope was only Niagara was Falls. Was Niagara Falls right? Of course. St. Catharines, right? Sure, well, that's same. <laughs> that's yeah, like, my biggest scope. Yeah, that's your whole world it up to a also, certain age. It also could be a little sarcastic, too, when someone said, I'm going to do that. And you'd say, yeah, until Niagara Falls, right? You oh, okay. Know, so it was a little bit of sarcasm Interesting. to it, too. You know? That's wonderful. Well, I, I really wanted to draw attention to that because I feel like that's been lost because I, 
you know, I grew up in Niagara Falls myself, um, and I had never heard the phrase. So it's, uh, it's, it's really neat to, to see that revived. Um, so you've written a number of novels on various subjects uh, for youth. And what made you want to revisit your own childhood in Niagara Falls for this one? Because I, I imagine you're drawing on your own experience here. Well, actually, I did it. I did it prior to this one when I wrote Kid Soldier. Kid Soldier is the story of my dad who was born in Niagara Falls. My father was born in Niagara Falls. And as a kid, he signed up underage to join the army. And so Kid Soldier, copy of it here, um, had um, the beginning with him trying to find work and he gets the work picking peaches along the Niagara Parkway and him and his buddy um, go and watch the rest of the honey honeymoon bridge fall into the water because it was crashing down. And then he joins up underage and goes to a military camp in Niagara on the lake. So a lot of that was explored way back in 1937, 38, 39, right before the war. But I hadn't done anything more modern with Niagara Falls. Like, and so that was sort of the real historical fiction. So um, I, I got thinking about growing up in Niagara Falls and everyone thinks that when you grow up in a special city, and I noticed this with children, whenever I told children when I was teaching, I came from Niagara Falls, they'd say, oh, you are so lucky. Like you right. seem to think because you're born there, you have uh, you know free passage to do anything right. in Niagara It's all fudge right? and cotton candy all the time. Exactly, yeah. especially fudge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's so funny because I would think to myself, they don't understand. It's no different than growing up in Toronto. It's no different sure. growing up anywhere else, you know. And there were the problems of growing up in Niagara Falls because in the summer, your city was taken over, absolutely taken over by the tourists. You didn't get it back until like after Thanksgiving. Right. right. So uh, I just wanted to do something that shows kids that, you know, it doesn't matter where you live you still have to face the same challenges and you still have to make the same decisions no matter where you're born. Right. Walk the same tight ropes, so to speak. Exactly. Walk right. the same tight ropes all the time. Right. So, um, I mean, kind of taking off from this discussion, based on the bio on your website and the author's note in the back, uh, you talk about winning the Bix Pickle Slogan Contest yourself. Um, so the book seems I to did. follow. And so the book seems to follow a number of the details of your own life. So what made you want to write this as fiction rather than autobiography? Um, autobiography of my life is quite boring, actually. Right. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, fiction is, is a way of taking the facts that you have of your life and making them far more exciting. Right. Sure. I mean, I think every one of us has met when we're growing up has met a more exciting person to hang out with than they should be hanging. <laughs> out with, right. Everyone has met that kind of person. Right. And um, it's funny because I had people say to me, who really was who really sure. was that person? You yeah, know, yeah. and I just say, well, it's a combination of people, you of know, course. and that's what you tend to do with fiction, because not everything happens in this in, in between two the length of two covers, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you take all this stuff and you compress it into a book. Right. So I think I just I just wanted kids to know about what it was like growing up in the falls and what it's like to have a friend that you're just not sure of. Sure, which I think I is... had six six different endings to this book. Oh, is that so? Yeah, and um, it was interesting because I really had to think about how I wanted to end the book, and you know, mm -hmm. right right to the ending where I just had Brenda just 
completely ignore the whole thing and get on with her life mm-hmm. or whether or not she was going to be kind and include Maureen and had a lot of angst about how to end it. Sure. Yeah. What, what led you to the, uh, the ending you eventually settled on? I don't want to give away the ending, by the way, for any listeners who haven't read no, the book. No, no. I just <laughs> wanted to demonstrate kindness. Kindness. You know, I thought, you know, let's be kind about this because, uh, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to make it an ending where kids get angry. You sure. know, someone might get angry about the ending. So just wanted to make it kind. Right. And I think it really, I mean, it is a, a novel kind of intended for a youth audience. I enjoyed it as an adult. I think you can certainly enjoy it on an adult level, but it's very much intended for a youth audience. And I think a lot of it really rings true, that that kind of, that problematic friendship, that kind of on again, off again. Um, so I think, you know, kids would really be able to, uh, you know, get a lot out of that. So I think that comes through. And the kindness, yeah, I think is, is a great kind of lesson with that, that audience in mind. Um, so I wanted to talk for a minute, speaking of Niagara Falls and uh, Niagara Falls history, a little bit close to it. The novel is close to our heart because it uh, actually features very prominently in a couple of chapters, the old Niagara Falls Public Library building at Armory Street and Victoria Avenue. And uh, exactly. yeah, so we were talking about this a little before we started recording, but what made you want to include the library so kind of prominently in the, in the book as a location? I think the library was probably the most important building to me in Niagara Falls when I was growing up. Um, my fa- First of all, my father used to go to the library. He was an avid reader of mysteries. He huh. loved mysteries books. And he would go every Thursday night. And there were times when, um, you know, he brought us along. But we Thursday nights, the children's library was closed, right? The upstairs was closed. Oh, no, closed. really? So Thursday nights, uh, we would hang around the adult library looking at stuff, you know, and being kind of bored. But on Saturdays, Saturday mornings, we were up at the crack of dawn on our bikes and off to the library. And that's because that's where we got our books. I mean, we really didn't own books back then. I think I owned six six books maybe, and they were all gifts. And I practically read the words right off the pages, right? <laughs> right. Reading them so much. And so the library, they didn't have a lot of story times that I recall. But the librarian, and I remember her name so clearly, Miss Lothian. And she actually was a star librarian. Mm -hmm. She knew what we liked to read. And when we handed a book in, she would say, oh, you finished it. Did you like it? Oh, I loved it. Well, now you're ready for this, you know. Mm -hmm. And I I can remember the day she moved me from the picture book section to what would be the young reader section. And it was almost like a ceremony, you know. (laughs) Jennifer, I think you're ready to read these books now. And I can remember picture book section was really low right and the books were all along and the the stacks were higher for the middle grade books and I remember looking up and thinking wow look at all these books you know and um, then I got to be a library helper and on Saturdays and I just thought I was the most important person in the world I would stand behind the desk and we had a series of paper cards then and a rubber stamp right Right. you know so check out the books you had to take the card out of the back and stamp it my first job when I got into libraries library helper was to move the date ahead on the rubber stamp right and that was just to me just incredible (laughs) (laughs) but we think it's so important right and uh yeah and so i worked on saturdays now the thing with library helpers is whoever got there first got to be the helper and i was so determined that i was up on the crack of dawn on saturdays to get there first i waited until the library opened in order to be a library helper and then summers came and 
we went every day to, to the library. But then they instituted a summer reading program. And it was you could take as many books out at one time as you could carry. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, oh, this is like mining for gold, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I took a stack of books home and my mother said, you're never going to be able to read them all, you know, in the period of time. Mm-hmm. And I said, I know. And I think there was just something comforting about having this arm full of books that I could bring home. Sure. <laughs> put yeah, down. Yeah. I, I think I got about halfway through the stack, but... There are books that I remember from the Niagara Falls Public Library that I own now because they were so important to me. And one of them was Tom's Midnight Garden. And that book is still in public libraries. I bet you've got it right now in your public library. I can check. And yeah, and uh, it was a story of uh, passing back in time. And I think that's what really hooked me on writing books about back in time. Right. Is um, is it there? Have you got it? No, we don't have that one, unfortunately, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. no. I mean, we may have. Tom's been- we've obviously had it at some point. It's, you know, when I was started here, I was told, uh, I've been here about three or four years now, I was told we'd never weeded any of our collection because, you know, being a smaller library, we just didn't want to get rid of anything. So we probably had it at that point. But it might have been. Uh, you probably did. Yeah. I, I picked it up um, when they were weed when they were weeding the libraries in one of my schools, mm-hmm. and and I found it on a cart for fifty cents, and I cr- I cried because it was being sold, but I also rejoiced because All I right. now had my own copy. Well, it's very much in print. I can see. Uh, so maybe yeah. we'll have to yeah. uh, we'll have to see about maybe getting that, given your, uh, your recommendation. Neat. Okay. I always like to get recommendations from people. You know, um, so that's wonderful. So what a what a great uh, what a great story. I, it's it's such an informal arrangement. It sounded like you kind of just show up and then you get to just be the helper for the day. It's no uh, that's right. Um, no asking your parents. No, no, or no sign up yeah, program. No, sign up. Yeah. no, nothing like that. You know, <laughs> things were simpler and, than uh, I, guess. I know. I know my mother was happy to get rid of me Saturday mornings, and sure. you could only work to lunch. Yeah, you could only right. work to lunch, and then you came home for lunch, and your day began. But that's right. the other thing. I lived one. T- maybe five houses, four houses away from the municipal pool, right? right? And it was funny because we were laughing about just this the other day with other friends from Niagara Falls. We actually thought the name of the pool was the municipal. Right. We didn't realize that municipal was a government turn, right? right? And yeah, yeah. everybody I grew up with said, where do you live? Oh, I live near the municipal. And everybody, <laughs> and everybody knew that was the pool. And we right. laughed now that we, that That's is hilarious. not the name of the pool, right? It was uh, Leslie, I don't know, something. Yeah. Is that the pool. one on Valleyway? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Okay, that's funny. That, that was known as the municipal. Yeah, and the, municipal. the other pool that was really important was the one that was at the Cyanamite, which is yes. long gone too. That yes. pool. My parents had told but me it, about that one. And supposedly the, the, the ground was kind of squishy underneath it. Like the, no kidding. the bottom yeah. was like mud, like a sludge. that. Uh, was from oh, the, yeah. And sometimes real fish showed up because right. they just brought the water in from the canal. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> when you think of the conditions that we lived under, yeah. you know, it was phenomenal, yeah. right? Yeah, it definitely wouldn't pass kind of health and safety standards today, I wouldn't think. But no, not today. So then interesting... you went to the library until the morning, and then you came back. And if you were lucky and had a dime, you could go swimming. Otherwise, you had to wait till 4 o'clock for free hour. Sure. And then you went swimming. Which features in the book, of course. That's so, I whole... mean, really, right. the life, my, yeah, my life was Brenda's life. You know, sure. all you did was swim and read. Right? Yeah. 
Until you met someone who got you in trouble. Of course, of course. And so that, I guess that takes me to my next question. So, um, you know, it is a very vivid kind of recreation of that period. You have a lot of uh, details, uh, historical details included. Were these all recalled from your memory as you're kind of recalling them now? Or did you have to do supplementary research while writing the book? Yeah, I always do supplementary research because um, I want to make sure that, you know, I'm not saying something incorrectly or someone might pick up, you know, pick sure. off on it. I do a lot of research with maps, too, um, so that I've got, you know, just the right, exactly the right location. So even if I'm doing my own hometown, I would still get a map out of the area. You know, I couldn't quite remember the street, one of the streets that was um, behind the pool that led uh, to um, Valleyway. I wanted to mention Valleyway Public School. My brother was uh, one of the first students when it opened. Oh, wow. And it was such a beautiful, well-bit, special school. And it went all the way to grade eight. Like, mm -hmm. so we were we were in the same school from K to eight, right? There was none of this junior school or middle school. Mm -hmm. But um, I wanted to make sure with the map that I had everything located so that I wasn't having her biking, like, from here to Thorold or something sure. back again, something impossible, yeah. right? You need to have it. So I do do a lot of back. And it was funny because when I did check to see on um, Miss Lothian, there actually is some information on Miss Lothian on the Internet because she did win a librarian award. Now, I described her differently um, just to make sure that, you know, I wasn't impinging on her own personal character. But but right. um, she was a real librarian, and she did receive an award for being the one of the best librarians in Niagara Falls. Wow! And she made a difference in your life. Yeah. Oh, she certainly yeah. did. Yeah. It's wow. amazing. It's interesting because I really wanted to be when I grew up a florist. <laughs> really? <laughs> and, and yeah, that's what I wanted to be. Interesting. And here's an interesting story. And I wish I'd kept this letter. I mean, I kept the pickle letter, mm -hmm. but I applied actually in grade twelve. Um, to go to the School of Horticulture mm -hmm. in Niagara Falls. Sure. And I got a letter back saying they were unable to take me because I was female. Oh, God. And that yeah. was the very beginning of mm -hmm. my sort of, um, uh, I don't know, my protest, beginning of, you know, my sense of protesting against the way the world was. Sure. And I wrote back to say I would be living at home so I would be able to attend. But they said it's a residential program and they only accept men. Mm -hmm. And that really is a letter. And I was angry and I threw that letter out. And then I went to grade 13 and went to university. So it's so funny, but because actually by them saying no to me, I ended up going off in a completely different path altogether, mm -hmm. right? I right. went to Western for um, a bachelor's of arts you know i ended up going to teachers college i ended up going to the university of waterloo i went all over the place all in in you know pursuit of english and language and drama right. and everything whereas right now i could be just making flower arrangements yeah you know? right, <laughs> so, right 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 yeah and sometimes those rejections in life kind of send you they're they're almost the best thing because they send you on a yeah, path you exactly. wouldn't have, you wouldn't have chosen you, you've come to writing after uh, careers as a teacher and a principal um can you talk a bit about your journey as a writer how you came to it after uh doing these other careers actually i've always been a writer mm -hmm. um when i was in uh when i was a teacher um i I started to, well, every teacher has to write lessons. You know, you have to put your lessons together. And, you have, and um, I was very interested in the way mathematics was being taught to children because it was been t being taught from paper. It was being taught from objects. 
I even noticed this actually with my granddaughter recently is when we were doing regrouping, you know, and borrowing and all those big complicated uh, mathematical concepts. And um, I had come up with an idea of how to teach tens and ones by counting Cheerios. And so what we did was, is we strung 10 Cheerios on a pipe cleaner and then 10 more and 10 more to make a hundred. And then, and the whole class together counted the number of Cheerios in a box. And it was very exciting. Mm -hmm. Someone said to me, boy, that's a really neat idea. You should write that up. So I wrote the idea up and it was published in the National Council of Teachers of uh, Mathematics magazine. And from then on, I started to write just little things about teaching, about how to do this and how to do that, you know. And um, I then, when I became, um, I became a consultant with the board. And it's interesting because this job led into eventually my other books. I was asked as a primary consultant to help teachers understand the book put out by the uh, Momichi Society, which is the Japanese, from the Japanese Cultural Center. That was at the time when the government had um, done reparation to the Japanese internments, to those who were interned in Japan, right? Right, right. I couldn't find any research on Japanese internment. It was was brutal. There was like one one paragraph in a high school textbook, and that was it. So I started to personally investigate that. But it wasn't until years later when I met my husband and found out that not only had he been interned, but his his mother and his whole family had been interned, that I thought, isn't that again? That's interesting again. That's another kind of thing in life that comes towards you and bounces off you, and then later you pick it up, Mm -hmm. right? So I used to do an awful lot of um, teacher's handbooks. I used to do an awful lot of units of study for teachers. I wrote for the Ministry of Education. Um, I wrote curriculum lots of times for the Peel Board of Education. In fact, one of the awards that I won was for a very tiny pamphlet called Stepping Into Kindergarten. And it was written for parents about what you need to do so your child is ready to step into kindergarten. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. just all the little things. Sure. And um, that actually won an award from the National Council of Teachers of Education. And um, so I was always writing. I was always putting onto paper ideas and thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, when I became vice principal of a middle school, they used to have a school letter, uh, not a school, a staff newsletter. And it was just, you know, the basics of what was going on in the school. And that was the first time I tried doing an editorial where I just would do a two or three paragraphs at the beginning of this staff letter of what was going on in the school this week or what I had noticed. And I became very philosophical about teaching to the point where people were asking for copies of this newsletter because they wanted to see what I was saying in Mm -hmm editorial for example one time i came back from um i think it was easter break and they had repaved the parking lot and they had changed the direction of all of the parking spaces right so where cars went this way now the cars went this way and i looked at that and i thought i wonder how many that's gonna how many people are gonna be bothered by that right it's a simple Mm -hmm. thing but Mm -hmm. i And so my editorial was, maybe it's time we all started facing in a different direction and looked at (laughs) teaching differently, right? Right. Right. So I used to pick up on these little things and just write about them. Sure. So then um, 
I was asked by one of um, the publishers, Addison Wesley, if I would be interested in working on um, a different kind of approach to mathematics instead of a textbook approach. And that's when I started working on explorations in early childhood education. And I did kindergarten, grade one and grade two. That was big. Uh, we traveled all over Canada doing workshops on that. And I had to come to a decision because uh, it was too much work in both levels. Like either I was going to be a teacher or I was going to be you know, writing in education. Mm -hmm. So what I did is I took a part-time job. I took a JK morning job and then was supposed to be working on publishing in the afternoon. Well, both jobs eventually started to bleed into each other again. So I decided I had to make a decision again. So I moved away from publishing and I carried on with my teaching job. And then I became, like I said, I became cult consultant, vice principal, principal. And then I decided, actually, I really didn't, everyone says, did you retire? And I said, well, yes, I retired. But what I really did is decided before I got too old and crotchety and wasn't able to do anything, I was going to finally devote my time to writing. Right. So Full time. that's when I did take early retirement. Right. But people laugh because they say, you never retired. You're still working. And I said, that's right. That's right. right. I just careers. Right. Yeah, you just switched <laughs> that's careers. All I did. Well, that's yeah. wonderful. What a yeah. what a what a great way to kind of keep that that uh, that, you know, ambition alive as a writer because it seems to me that based on your author's note you've that really started with this whole the, the pickle contest you won that and that kind of inspired you to you know from a very young age to, to be a writer and you've talked about being inspired by the librarian at the library and everything so you've, you've kept that fire burning throughout throughout that time and the other careers that's that's wonderful um as someone who's harbored writing ambitions from an early age, do you have any advice that uh, you could recommend parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, any adults in, in children's lives could give to, you know, aspiring young writers in their lives? Uh, there's a lot of advice to give. Um, you know, the concept of contest, the pickle contest, mm -hmm. um, there are, I don't know if your library does this, but um, the Burlington Public Library, we sponsored, we started up a, a contest called, you know, Let's Write, mm -hmm. and it was a teen writing contest. So we brought a few authors in, and uh, the kids, we, we started with a photo. We'd give them a photo and have them write a story about it. And then myself and Sylvia McNichol, who's another uh, prolific author in Burlington, right. um, we were judges. And then we would hold a party at the end and give out awards. And we had, you know, a few funny awards, like the one that would make the best TV commercial, the one that would broke your heart, you know, oh, that neat. kind of stuff. Right. And so we ran writing contests. And I think kids who want to write need to expose their writing to a bigger audience than just their parents and their grandparents. It's, a, it's really important to have a third eye, a mm -hmm. look, you know, Mm -hmm. Actually, it's really the first eye because the third eye is really your parents and everyone. But sure, you need someone to look at your work. So contests are really important. It's mm. also really important to learn the craft of writing because just getting words down on paper. Yeah, that's the first step. But every story has a form and, and, and a story has to have an arc. It has to have a beginning, a middle and an end. And it was funny because the first thing I did um, when I left my job, I went to Humber College. I turned around and went to Humber College, the summer school for writers. Mm -hmm. And I took the course on how to write a picture book. And a picture book is less than 500 words. And trying to get a complete story in 500 words is, 
is really a challenge. Right. It is an absolute challenge. Right. And I have moved away. I mean, I've I've got two. I still have two kids' novels on the go that I'm writing, mm-hmm. but two picture books coming out. I have one coming out uh, in October here with Pajama Press, and I have one coming out the following year with Groundwood Books. And this is where I'm moving. I'm taking all these words that I've learned to learn, and I'm getting right down to 500 words. Sure. This, this is where my goal is, is to write more picture books. Right. And so I imagine that's even more challenging having to pare it down to kind of the bare essentials. Absolutely. But, you know, Absolutely. Economy you know. of language kind of. No, oh, that's interesting. That's great advice. Yeah, we don't have uh, any contests per se. I think we've we've run things like that off and on throughout the years. So we might try that. Well, again. Greg, if you want help setting one up, just give me a call. Really? And I'll come oh. and help you set it up. Well, thank and I'll you. be happy to be a judge, having come from Niagara Falls. Right. There's that local connection. Wow, that's, that's a great. that's a very kind offer. We might just take you up on that. I mean, we've been so uh, COVID's been so difficult for us, and as as I'm of sure for course. most libraries. We've just lost so much connection with our community that we used to have. Um, you know, some people are still able to connect with us through virtual programming and whatnot. But part of the whole reason for doing this podcast is because we can't do events like this, or haven't been. We hopefully will be able That's to. That's right. Haven't been able to do events like this in person, where we could just have you in and just talk to you in a room full of people. And, right. And you, know, and, you know, kids, kids are so screened out. I mean, they they're just screened out. They don't want to sit still anymore. They no. want to, you know. And they just want to be outside and do things. But um, instruction, and I know instruction really well. I know the art of instruction. And Mm -hmm. sitting still is not um, natural to young children. You have to find a way to instruct them while, you know, you're giving them the chance to move around. I used to laugh because I say parents are so happy that their kids can walk and talk. And they go to school and we say, shut up and sit down. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Yeah, (laughs) right. It's contrary to the way they work, which is why I was such an advocate of um, active learning, of right. kids learning actively. That's right? so true. I mean, my son can't even uh, sit still at the you know at the breakfast table. <laughs> he has to get up and walk, circle the room while he's chewing his you know oatmeal know. or whatever. But that's <laughs> so, the way they are. They're yeah. built that way, right? Yeah, that's true. I, I I saw a thing. It was a pilot done at a school somewhere I want to say out west and it was they did recess very frequently it was like a recess every 40 minutes or something oh like well shorter, I'll tell you sh- something about that that's called the that's called the nutrition break and right. it's funny because that's one of the things I instituted in my school I was really lucky when I um was with the Peel board I was allowed to open a brand new school right and I thought, wow, open a brand new school. I never realized how much work that was you had to meet I literally met with the architects while we were building this school. oh wow and had to order the furniture like when you open a school you really open a school right do all the hiring and everything and one of the things i had been off to a conference in boston and i had learned about this thing called the nutrition break and what it is is instead of and you know recess always drove me crazy because for 15 minutes by the time kids got snow pants on and got out the bell went and came back in again right yeah And again, I looked at it from the point of view of engaging in play. All you could do was go out in the playground, maybe walk around, throw a snowball, get in trouble, and come back in. There was like (laughs) nothing you could do that could, there was no time, right? And this concept of nutrition break was, first of all, kids are always hungry. They're, They're always hungry. It doesn't matter if they've just had breakfast. 10 minutes later, can I have a snack? Can I have this? Can I have that? So to take the two 15-minute breaks and the so-called 40 minutes or whatever it is for lunch, put them together and then split them apart, 
so that they always got a chance to eat, but then they got a chance to play properly. They mm-hmm. could get outside and actually engage in some play and come back in again. And I, when I did that at the school, a lot of people thought, I, well, a lot of things I do, people think I'm crazy. <laughs> but a lot of people thought, wow, that's really different, you know. And it started to catch on. And uh, a lot of schools now do it. But the whole idea of the Nutrition Bank, again, is to engage in serious play. Play mm-hmm. is what, how kids learn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hence your work with... Uh you know, introducing that element into kind of... That's right. Into, that's into right, education. yeah. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah, that's uh, it's such an interesting topic. The um, other thing I mandated in my school, though, was, and I have a lot of teachers who would still laugh about this, four stories a day. You have to read aloud to your kids four times a day. Wow. And when I interviewed teachers, I would say to them, do you believe in reading out loud to children? Oh, yeah, you know, once in a while. And I'd think, no, thank you. <laughs> and uh, someone would say, oh, I could read to my kids all day. Boom, you're hired, right? Right, yeah, yeah. Because I used to say to them, you read them a story first thing in the morning. You read them a story before they go for, or when, before they go for lunch, when they come back from lunch, and then you read them a story before they go home. Right. And I did a little experiment when I was teaching junior kindergarten. I took the same book because I know kids don't take the book, the whole book in all at once, right? They can fixate on one picture and be thinking about that, right? right. So for junior kindergarten, I took one book and it was um, The Very Noisy Cricket. And, and I took that book and I read that same book twice a day, the whole week. And I remember my teaching assistant looking at me like, are you going to read that book again? Like, I can't take it, right? Right. I just wanted to see at the end of the week what their connection was with that book. And at the very last time I read it, and this would be Friday, right before they're going home, I closed the book, and one child said, you know what? And I said, what? He said, I think I've heard that book before. <laughs> After <laughs> having heard it twice a day. Broke up, right? Because yeah. Every day, because they don't yeah. take a whole book in. Sometimes they just take the cover in or they just take in one phrase right, Right. or whatever. And we expect too much of them because we throw a book at them and then say, and here's another one. And here's another one. Here's another one. You know, so I I still can hear Henry saying, you know what? I think I heard that book before. And, you know, I looked at my teacher's assistant across the room and she (laughs) laughed because she realized what I had been doing the whole week. Right. Right. Did you continue with that after? Uh, I did, but yeah. I did. I did broaden their horizons a bit. But what I would do is, I had a story table where once I finished a book, I put it on the table, so that they could take it and sit with it, right? Mm-hmm. So they had access to that book as well. Because right. you know, when you give children free access to books, it's overwhelming sometimes. Like yeah. they don't even know what to pick, and they, yeah. so they see a dinosaur, they take it home. They don't care. You know, there may be not much of a story to it, but they're picking it because they're overwhelming. This yeah. is why librarians are gold yeah, because sure. they are the ones that show the books. Yes. I yeah. did a workshop for the Ontario Libraries Association once on book chains and how to link up books in a chain so uh-huh. that the books had a connection and it wasn't just about you know how uh, librarians, it's Easter, so let's all read books about bunnies. Well, you sure. know, they could all be randomly different books about bunnies. Yeah. What you want to do is you want to find the same link between this bunny and between something else and something else. Right. 
That's fascinating. Yeah. There's such an art to it. So for something so, you know, deceptively simple, there's so much thought exactly. that goes into, you know. But into, also you have to do a lot of reading. You have to know your for books. For sure. For yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. That's I find it fascinating how you've uh you've taken this kind of yourself as a writer and this love of narrative and love of stories and you you took that into your other career. It seemed to probably added a lot, I would think, as in your yeah. career as an educator. Yeah. That yeah, that because you're right. I often read read to the class uh, when I was principal. I often read to the classes as well. Right, you know, and um, I tried to do things with the kids. Like instead of Halloween, which uh, we had a, a huge immigrant population, so instead of Halloween, which was kind of foreign to a lot of them, mm-hmm. we would have dress as your favorite book character day. Oh, nice! You know, or right. just talk about disguise, right, sure. and why people disguise themselves. So there's ways of manipulating the world of literature so it means something to the kids that are coming right right? you have to make it relevant of course yeah of course for for them to have some kind of interest in it so um speaking of uh you know yourself as a writer and other you've written this book uh you were shortlisted for the hamilton arts award for this book and you talked about uh Unfortunately, you never got a proper launch because it launched right, like literally as COVID Maybe kind of took off. Maybe this is the launch, Greg. There, here it is. You know, two <laughs> two plus years later, um, <laughs> never too late. Uh, so I, I just wanted to ask, um, you know, what are you working on now? What's what's next for you in terms of uh, your career as a writer? I've completed a book right now, which I'm surprised isn't being grabbed, uh, given the political circumstances of today. But um, a girl I met in school. When I went to Valleyway School, I didn't quite understand what was going on with her because I realized later she was a Hungarian refugee. Mm. And she had escaped with her grandparents to Canada from Hungary during the uprising, right? Mm-hmm. 1956 uprising. And um, so I wrote a book called Girls of Steel. That's the title of it. And who knows if that will ever be the title of it, sure. right? And it's the it's the comparison between a girl coming to Canada from such an uprising background to a young girl whose only concern is reading comic books. Right. And the contrast between the two, but how they become friends and how each of them learns about each other's background and each of them. And in the the way they become girls of steel because Mm. they become strong in different ways right and i've also included in the book for the first time um much like the new movie red panda has included is uh, a discussion about menstrual cycle and how oh. that affects and changes a young girl right and so there's there's two issues there um one is uh escape from a country that is being uh you know, not well bombed. I guess they didn't really bomb Hungary, but they did take Hungary over. Mm-hmm. So there is the escape from the Soviets, and then there's this concept of learning to live with your uh, with your menstrual period. So I mean, there's two issues there that are really important. Sure. And I'm just waiting for a publisher to realize what a great book it is. <laughs> <laughs> that must be so frustrating, yeah, to have, you pour your heart and soul into something, yeah. and, you know, to have to it, wait. It's to, a to waiting see it game. Yeah. That's the funny thing. It's a waiting game. Sure. That, you know, the book that I have coming out in um, in the fall with Pajama Press, um, 
that's been around for about four or five years. Right. You know, just uh, waiting for the right home, and then they yeah. have to match it up with the right illustrator. But I have to tell you, it's going to be the most beautiful book in the world. Sure. When that book comes out, Greg, I'm going to come down to Niagara Falls and read that as story time. Oh, please do. Kids. I yes. mean, I'm hoping by that point we can have, yeah, guests in the building. That would be great. I mean, we, we love stuff like that. And it, it, yeah. it offers so much to the community. I mean, and that's a an excuse to, you know, bring classes in. Um, we exactly. Can, you know, bring, invite, invite schools to come, uh, especially some of the, those that are close by. Um, well, that's, that's really interesting. Um, so where can people go to find out more about your work and to keep up with your activity as a writer? Um, I have a website, www.jennifermaruno.com. Really interesting, easy, right? I have a website. Um, my books are available, uh, chapters everywhere. Amazon, they're available absolutely anywhere. Right, major booksellers. And- yeah, and li- Niagara Falls Public Library. I'm just going to say yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, this, so I mean, I, I'm not anybody's secret. You know, I'm I'm available anywhere you want to go. Currently, I'm working right now with um, the Writers Union of Canada on a mentorship program, and I'm uh, mentoring a young lady who works on poetry. Um, so I'm also available through the Writers Union of Canada. And I'm also available through Canscape. Now, you need to know about Canscape. It's the Canadian Society of Children's Authors, Illustrators, and Performers. Right. And um, it's they meet uh, every month. And it's just amazing what they do in terms of promoting authors and illustrators. I think we may have been to, do they have showcases every once in yes, a while? Yes, they yeah, do. Yeah, I've been to one one or two of those where the, yes, they'll, they do. they'll have a series of authors and they'll just do basically book talks about their own books. Yeah. Yeah, or, you know, recent work or whatever. So, yeah, that's, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful way to learn about, uh, you know, about, because uh, it is, it's kind of overwhelming in the field, like, to even know. I'm not a children's librarian, ch- children's librarian per se, but of any, any body of literature, there's just so, so much coming out all the time, it's hard to keep track. Exactly. Yeah. So exactly. to make that connection with an author is wonderful. And, uh, you know, especially when, interestingly, like, um, I think that pretty much covers us. We're, we're probably off the record now. I, I mean, unless, is there anything else you wanted to say? Oh, I or could add? go on for hours. Because, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean that, that's it for my questions. That's all I had prepared. But right. I, I just wanted to say. I, I do want to introduce you to the Cherry Blossom series, though. Oh. The Cherry Blossom series is the one that I talked about writing about the internment. Yes, that I saw was that. up. Yeah, that was up for the Half Attack Award. That was up for the um, oh, Rocky Mountain Award. It was up for the Young uh, Readers Award. And it starts off with, I just get the books here. Yeah, I saw them on your on your website. I didn't realize it was about the Japanese internments during World yeah, War II. Yeah, the first one, uh, When the Cherry Blossoms Fell, that's an actual photograph on the front of one of the little girls who was, uh, you know, put on the train and it's interesting mm. because this is exactly what's Uh-oh. happening in the ukraine right now right with people leaving the country right mm-hmm. now the people that are leaving ukraine are doing so voluntarily but this is the canadian government who took these people out right. of their homes and the second book is um cherry blossom winter that's the winter in the camp right and this is really interesting because cherry blossom ah. baseball takes place in uh bronte Oh, which is just outside great. of between Oakville and Burlington, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, this is where the the family, which was my husband's family, came to eventually live, was uh, in Bronte, and they got a job. Um, her his father got a job on a gladiola farm. 
Oh, gladiola. And what is a, is that a type of flower? A, a sorry. flower. Sorry, my knowledge. A flower. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. My knowledge of flowers and is not is not great. That's right. And <laughs> and it was growing gladiolas for um, florists, and I thought, oh my right. goodness, there's another connection that comes back up again. Right. You know, so all my love of learning about flowers and bulbs right. and everything came yeah. out when I was writing the chapter, one of the chapters for Cherry Blossom Baseball. Like you're saying, life's kind of funny that way. Those cycles that kind of pop up. Exactly, and your interests come back and. Not- you yeah. you know and it's right. like oh i, I i'm gonna write about that <laughs> yeah it's maybe it's the universe trying to tell you something yeah um uh what was i gonna say yeah i, I find it interesting that you uh when you spoke about how you couldn't find any information on the japanese internments during world war ii because it's, it's fairly well i think included in history books now but it's kind of something similar i would imagine to like residential schools where it was it was not even included in, in any textbook on indigenous history when i was in school you know now do you know my book totem i've seen it on your i was just going through your work this morning so is yeah. that is that a residential school story it is right. and th- this is one of the books i wrote when i came when i um finished my career as an educator it was just as truth and reconciliation was being introduced mm-hmm. and i thought to myself you know, this is such a big, important part of Canadian history, and yes. I like to focus on Canadian history and put it in story context, right? Right. And so this book I wrote all about um, a residential school, which I named Redemption Residential School. And again, it's about a young boy who is half Native, half white, and he He's an orphan and he doesn't know where he belongs and he ends up going back in time and finds all all about his side of his life as being indigenous. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's another book though that it came under after it was done, um, the whole issue of writing about indigenous people without being indigenous came right. up. Right. And once again, I have a book that kind of goes you know, over the falls. People are starting to read it now. But um, for it, and again, it's a way of of teaching through storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how teaching started, was through telling stories. So I'm just taking it to the next level, telling stories between covers. Right. And it's such such a fundamental way that people make sense of the world, through narrative. So yeah, it's, it's fundamental to education as much as... Just our, the way we conceptualize pretty much anything. Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. Well, it's wonderful. Thank you uh, for the conversation, Jennifer. You've, I was taking some- and that's it for the podcast. To learn more about author Jennifer Maruno's work, you can visit her website, jennifermaruno.com. Or visit the Niagara Falls Public Library to borrow your copy of Until Niagara Falls. Otherwise, we will see you next time.